This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This episode is the first in a series on theology and Martin Heidegger, with a focus on Heidegger's so-called black notebooks. These episodes are recordings from presentations given at a symposium on the black notebooks, hosted by CGR back in December of 2015. If you enjoyed these episodes, be sure to look up the anthology with the same name as the symposium, Heidegger and Theology, after the Black Notebooks, which was edited by Dr. Morten Björk and the main organizer of the event, Jane Svenungsson, Professor of Systematic Theology at CTR. The book contains edited versions of the presentations that you will be listening to in this series, as well as others from the symposium. And a link to the anthology is given in the show notes of this episode. First out in this series is Judith Wolf presenting on the theme Religious Aspects of the Black Notebooks, Overview and Analysis, which is followed by George Patterson on Heidegger and Catholic theology, and lastly Hans Ruin on Paulinism in Heidegger. But in this episode, we will be listening to Judith Wolff, who is Professor of Philosophical Theology at the University of St. Andrews, and who in this talk will gather significant remarks on Christianity in the Black Notebooks and analyze them in the context of Heidegger's attitude to religion at the time. for the invitation. <clears throat> it's a great pleasure to be here, especially because uh, where I live in Scotland and before that in England, the black notebooks are not really much discussed except for a few comments on the Jews, uh, largely because they're 2,000 pages long, uh, not many people read German, and so uh, we prefer sound bites. But um, it's, it's fascinating to be here and to listen to uh, what other people think about them, and I'm very much looking forward to the round table to see how our thoughts come together. Um, My paper will be a little more uh, basic, simple, hopefully, uh, about the comments that Heidegger makes specifically about Christianity in the Black Notebooks. Uh, I'm going to try to walk you through those a little bit and to give some contextualization, both in his path of thinking and in the um, personal and professional life that surrounded the writing of the Black Notebooks. Uh, I hope that Peter will be um, indulgent, since I know that he is not in favor of reading Heidegger's philosophy in the context of personal happenings, but we'll just see what comes out of it. Um, Heidegger's relationship to Christianity remained turbulent and fraught throughout his life. The 1910s saw his conversion from um, an anti-modernist Catholicism to an anti-metaphysical Protestantism. Uh, He started out as an anti-modernist Catholic who wanted to study scholasticism and to make scholasticism uh, useful or or fruitful for the current time. He very soon became uh, disillusioned with that, particularly with the idea that you could see the world as a closed system somehow from the outside. Um, And so he found in Lutheranism, in the theology of the cross, in Kierkegaard's um, theology, an alternative 
form of Christianity that to him seemed more uh, true to the experience of Christianity as something uh, existential, as, a, as something that arises uh, from the moment and within time. Um, he wanted originally to study philosophy or to use philosophy as a means of describing in adequately rigorous terms the kind of experience that Christianity was. And of course he, he, uh, he looked to Paul and to some of Augustine um, for early descriptions of this aboriginal experience. Uh, and we've heard a lot about that uh, in the first lecture today, for which I'm very grateful. Um, however, he soon in the 1920s turned from philosophy as a sort of preparatio evangelia, um, as, a, as a description of the Christian experience, to philosophy as an alternative to Christianity, an alternative form of um, facilitating authentic existence. Uh, he started to see all of Christianity as mired, in a sense, in the metaphysical impulse that he first saw in scholasticism, um, as somehow positing a salvation or a, a saviour, a view from the outside that could make this life intelligible. He thought that that was, that was untrue to the experience of actual living. Um, that had to be discarded. At least as a philosopher, you must not, he thought, talk about anything outside of our factic experience um, of temporality, of living unknowingly from moment to moment. Uh, and so as I've discussed in one of my other books, uh, Heidegger's Eschatology, he sort of, um, he took being unto death, a living consciously towards one's own death as a, as a de-eschatologized eschatology. Um, a sense of living the temporality and the uncertainty that is our lot uh, as human beings because we are never defined fully in the present but are always defined in some sense by a future, by decisions that are constitutive of who we are and yet that we cannot either grasp or know in advance. So this sort of living always in uncertainty um, became a, a secular a philosophical principle uh, of life that had its roots in Christian eschatology to some extent, but uh, without the security of, of a view from beyond, so to say, or something that something concrete that we could hope for. Um, the upheavals, however, of the 1930s and the continual development of his own thinking destabilized his, this position too. A period of intense personal struggle with the faith of his youth, sometimes accompanied by vehemently anti-Christian polemics in the public sphere, and as we'll see in the Black Notebooks, resolved in the 1940s and 50s into an acceptance that his theological origins had set him on the path of thinking, and into a systematic attempt to think through the implications of this newfound realization that, as he says, origin always remains future. So he returns to a more uh, apophatic, if you will, understanding of Christianity in his later life, but that's not something we'll get into here. Um, now, Heidegger's growing commitment in the late 1920s to philosophy over and against theology was reinforced by, and in turn encouraged, by an increasingly exclusive focus on the degenerate form of Christianity which he had criticized from the beginning. In other words, in the early 1920s, he still thought that the very earliest kind of Christianity, exemplified in Paul, for example, um, which the biblical scholars of the time had just rediscovered, 
the eschatological expectation of the New Testament, the sense in the New Testament that this is not, Christianity is not a new cultural phenomenon, it's a radically anti-cultural phenomenon, it's something that's only for the present, it's not going to go on for long, Jesus is going to come back and so forth. Um, in the early 1920s, he still hoped that even though later theology and Christendom were degenerate, this earliest Christianity could be a fountain of renewed spirituality for us. By the late 1920s, he had given up any such hope. Um, and that was partly, I think, um, a, a result of sheer experience. He didn't know how or he didn't see anybody translating this earliest Christianity into something viable for the present. And of course we can talk about Bart and so forth, who was a um, who thought that he was doing just that. Um, and it was partly, partly from the sense that it was perhaps in principle impossible if Christianity lived in the earliest time from an expectation of an imminent end of the world, then once it had become a thoroughly cultural phenomenon, uh, it was unclear how this radical living of, of temporality and uncertainty could be sustained. And so from the, from the late 1920s onward, when Heidegger talks about Christianity, he only talks about Christianity as a sort of degenerate system, uh, as what it has become, rather than as um, what it might have been in its origins. Accordingly, as I say, the philosopher's dominant perspective on Christian faith and theology becomes increasingly less historical and more systematic uh, in the sense that um, in the sense that it it is now primarily Catholicism also that he talks about, um, which is very interesting. Catholicism to him now is the true form of Christianity, um, even though that's a bad thing. Um, so faith and theology in the late 1920s become coterminous with systematic theology, also called scholasticism or metaphysics in his terminology, in its urge for answers. Thus, in his 1927 lecture, Phenomenology and Theology, Heidegger calls faith, quote, the mortal enemy of philosophy. And in 1928, he insists that, and I quote, in the philosophical problem of existence, there is necessarily an absolute opposition to all Christianity. Um, I should say that this is partly at that time because he thinks, from his experience, uh, or from what he says in Being and Time, at this time he thinks that human existence is a question that cannot have an answer. And so if Christianity wants to give an answer to the question of existence, be it by God being the origin of our existence, the creator God, or God being the end of our existence, um, in going to heaven, seeing God, then Christianity is fundamentally untrue to what it is to be human. Because what it is to be human is, as I said, always to live... Um, with the uncertainty of our own origins, always to live with the uncertainty of what is to become of us. And though we have a drive for wholeness, we would like to be whole and understand our lives as a whole. If we were ever to get to the point where our lives are whole, we would no longer be there to see them because we would be dead, or we are dead. So our life is a question that constitutively can't be answered because our death will preclude us from seeing the whole of our lives, even if there is such a whole. Um, this intellectual opposition, which he formulates in the late 1920s, continues without significant change in the 1930s and has been evidence, evident at least since the publication of his lecture, uh, lecture series Introduction to Metaphysics, which was published quite early. Uh, so the black notebooks don't tell us very much that's new uh, in these terms. Thus, 
and I give the example from the, uh, the lecture series Introduction to Metaphysics in 1935, co uh, same time as the Black Notebooks, Heidegger insists in, uh, in this lecture series that to believe in the Bible as divine revelation is to make oneself incapable of genuinely asking the basic philosophical question, why are there beings rather than nothing? Because one's very starting point is a particular apparent answer to that question. Um, interestingly, from a Christian standpoint, therefore, he says, it would be mere foolishness, with all the implications of Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, it would be mere foolishness from a Christian perspective to raise the question anew. To do so sincerely, rather than merely as an intellectual exercise, would mean giving oneself up as a believer. You can't be a Christian and genuinely ask, because that would mean giving up your belief. But precisely this foolishness, Heidegger continues, now with overtones of 1 Corinthians, the foolishness of God is... Uh, etc. This very foolishness constitutes philosophy. It's because of this fundamental opposition that, and I quote him, Christian philosophy is a square circle and a misunderstanding. Now what's interesting, and this is, um, this is something that we see very much in the Black Notebooks, Although the substance of Heidegger's critique of Christianity remains relatively unchanged between the late 1920s and the 1930s, the tone changes, I would say, quite dramatically. Um, again and again, in the Black Notebooks and, and also elsewhere, there's a, an extremely acerbic tone, uh, a very forceful rejection of Christianity in the 1930s, which seemed to be much more sort of purely academic in the 1920s. Um, and I would say that partly this has to do with, um, with his professional context at the time. After his return from the Protestant University of Marburg to the Catholic University in Freiburg in 1928, Heidegger's intellectual opposition to Christianity acquires an increasingly vehement and acrimonious quality, sometimes culminating in open hostility at the university. In a letter to his friend Elisabeth Blochmann, shortly after his arrival in Freiburg, Heidegger expressed his, and I quote, abhorrence with present-day Catholicism. This abhorrence became the dominant tone of his public attitude to Christianity in the 1930s, expressed both in his lectures and in his severe assessment of a number of later quite well-known academic um, Catholic doctoral and postdoctoral candidates, including Lotz, Max Müller, and Gustav Siebert. Um, as I say, I think that the institutional context of, the, of his work in the early 1930s is partly, uh, is, is partly the, the explanation for this. Um, so indulge me if I sketch that for you for a moment. Uh, the philosophy faculty in Freiburg had been founded at which Heidegger taught and at which he had been a student. The philosophy faculty, as many philosophy faculties in Germany, had been founded as a sort of preparatory education for people wanting to go into either law, medicine, or theology. So philosophy offered both freestanding courses and, of course, um, subsidiary courses or additional courses for people who were studying for different degrees. And it was in its role as providing supplementary courses in history and philosophy for theologians, most of whom were candidates for the priesthood, that the philosophy faculty in Freiburg was very reluctantly drawn into the intellectual and political ambitions of the Roman Catholic Church that dominated the early 20th century. The modernist crisis brought much debate and friction in the faculty, particularly as a result of the 1907 encyclical Passendi and the 1910 Oath Against Modernism. The uh, 1907 encyclical ruled that candidates for the priesthood 
must not attend courses at state, in, at state institutions, which they could also attend at confessional institutions, meaning, for example, that students like the young Heidegger, when he was still a theology student before he switched to philosophy, were not allowed to attend lectures on the early church in the philosophy faculty if similar lectures were also being given at the theology faculty. Um, the anti-modernist oath, moreover, obliged all professors in philosophical theological seminaries to repudiate central innovations of modern scholarship, including the historical critical method and post-Kantian epistemology. Um, this was one of the milestones in the young Heidegger's path from Catholicism to an undogmatic Protestantism, as he called it. Um, so he was, he was very much against the anti-modernist oath and the machinations of the Catholic Church in his youth um, were a driving force away from Catholicism for him. Um, a particular nexus of interaction between the philosophy faculty and the Roman Catholic authorities was one of the faculty's two professorial chairs in philosophy. Uh, there was one, usually referred to as philosophy one, which was traditionally associated with Neo-Kantianism, and before Heidegger took that chair in 1928, Husserl and Windelband, and I believe Rickert, had held it. Um, but there was a second chair which was traditionally connected to Christian philosophy, philosophy too it was usually called um, and when Heidegger wrote his habilitation, his postdoctoral thesis it was to make him a suitable candidate for that chair which of course he didn't get and that precipitated his open allegiance to Protestantism um, after that time now in 1932 this personal and institutional conflict came to a head when the concordat between Baden and the Holy See placed the philosophy faculty's chairs in Christian philosophy as well as in medieval history under the direct control of the Roman Catholic authorities, stipulating that they be held, and I quote from the Concordat, by personages suitable for the impeccable education of students of theology. The faculty board, on which Heidegger served, the philosophy faculty board, strongly protested the establishment of these Concordat chairs, uh, but was ignored by the university senate and years of friction followed. In 1941, after the death of its incumbent, the faculty, no doubt aided by the now anti-Christian regime, temporarily abolished the Concordat chair in Christian philosophy and rededicated it to psychology. And there's been much speculation to what extent Heidegger himself was uh, personally involved in having that done. But um, they were the philosophers were very much opposed to to it being uh, controlled like that by the Catholic Church. Um, so Heidegger, who had devoted much of his intellectual energy ever since the early 1920s, both to university reform in general and to a rigorous defense of the essential separation of theology and philosophy as disciplines, did not suffer these impositions lightly. His double failure to bring academic reform to the university and to assert his vision of philosophy even within his own faculty made him particularly hostile to all perceived encroachments of Christian philosopher on his academic field. Um, and so you have, you, have, you have all these outbursts uh, of intense frustration, and particularly you can see them, apart from in the Black Notebooks, in his assessments of Catholic philosophy candidates. Um, as chair in philosophy one, Heidegger habitually served as second examiner for doctoral and postdoctoral theses submitted to the chair in philosophy two, uh, so the Catholic philosopher, uh, who at the time was Martin Honecker. Heidegger's examiner's reports for the qualifying theses, so the habilitations of Gustav Sievert and Max Müller, both submitted in 1937, 
reflect his frustration with the consequences of church control over academic posts. Uh, of Sievert's work, he wrote sardonically that a text so laden with presuppositions could only be justified by the Concordat, and concluded by declaring himself incapable of assessing its merits as philosophy, because it simply wasn't philosophy. Um, of Miller's work, and I must say that he and Max Miller became good friends later in life, but of Miller's work on Thomas Aquinas, he noted, and this is very typical, that, quote, though the author talks a lot about problems, these remain confined to a, to a dogmatic domain which is itself not at all problematized and within which the decisive questions of philosophy are not raised because they cannot be raised. Uh, Heidegger concluded with the double-edged praise that as far as academic suitability was concerned, and I quote, it must be said that the candidate is exceptionally well, well qualified for a Catholic chair. All of these things we see in the Black Notebooks, uh, just as we see them, as I said, in, his, in, in these other writings of the time. Um, and I just, I'll just give you one or two quotes from the Black Notebooks uh, of this ilk. Uh, in Notebook 6, he says, the eternal, the eternal is the refuge or excuse of those who cannot deal with time, i.e. who never grasp it. That's why eternity is the monopoly of Christianity. And then uh, again in Notebook 6, he says, the average in all beings is the sharpest opponent of the gods. Uh, gods here in his new sense, in his polytheistic sense that Peter talked about. We'll get back to that. But the Christian God is perhaps himself the absolute average and therefore the most persistent in the West. He is, moreover, as if made for modernity since one can count and bargain with him. Um, so we see here already the beginning of his idea that Christianity is essentially the beginning of metaphysics and therefore also the beginning of technology, the beginning of anything that counts everything in the world merely as respondent to our needs, uh, as made in the image of our own uh, requirements um, and of our own frameworks. So even the Christian God, perhaps more than anything else, the Christian God is the one who is made in the image of our own needs to secure ourselves from the danger of the uncertainty of time um, with whom one can reckon and bargain. Now, interestingly enough, in the early 1930s, Heidegger still exempts or uh, sees a radical division between Christianity and its problems on the one hand and Nazism on the other hand. Uh, and that disappears entirely after 1934-35. Um, but let's stick for a moment with the, with the situation in the early 1930s. So he's, he, he's, already, um, he's already fiercely against Christianity and its urge for answers. Uh, he does, however, hope still for Hitler and the National Socialist movements as perhaps the beginning or the driving force of the kind of radical conscious living that he had um, that he had called for in being in time. When he opens the Black Notebooks in 1931-32, we don't have the first one, of course, but the second one, it's with the dejected refrain that no one gets being in time. 
Instead of changing their lives, people sit in cafes prattling about authenticity and publish half-baked articles about anxiety. Um, clearly, um, hasn't stopped. Um, how, Heidegger asks again and again in the first 50 pages or so of the Black Notebooks, how can his project, which should elicit a consciously lived life, not more chatter, be actualized, and not barely, merely by one or two exceptional individuals, but among a whole generation of young Germans? Uh, the chafed mood lasts until the end of his 1931-32 notebooks, and then he starts pricking up his ears at Hitler's talk of the greatness of the German people and the need for discipline, suffering, and the shedding of false securities in order to realize their potential. In November 1932, Heidegger writes excitedly to his friend Bultmann, uh, who, as we've heard, was, and as we all know, was never a Nazi and later joined the Confessing Church, he wrote to his friend Bultmann that National Socialism might be a movement with enough driving force to instill in Germany as a whole the kind of conscious life that he envisions. Perhaps more interestingly, Bultmann agrees that although he regrets National Socialism's consolidation into a political party, yet, and I quote from Bultmann, the actual movement of, of Nazism, the movement, was, and perhaps still is, something great, with its instinct for the ultimate its feeling of solidarity, and its discipline. Bultmann's sympathetic response may seem shocking, but in reality, it merely shows just how underspecified the National Socialist program still was in the early 1930s, and I think that's, that's worth emphasizing. I mean, we, uh, we had the Scottish referendum a year ago um, deciding on whether Scotland should be independent, and there was a very interesting series of profiles in one of the national newspapers interviewing people who were in favor of independence, and their visions of what the state should be like after independence were radically incompatible with each other. I mean, they all wanted different things from an independent Scotland, and yet they all thought, if Scotland becomes independent, this is how it's going to be. And it's just, of course, a natural human thing that what is not yet in existence is something that we can project our hopes and desires onto. So it's very clear, of course, that, that Nazism at the time was still relatively underspecified, in particular for Heidegger. It had no educational program yet, and Heidegger, who had been so insistent on or so eager for university reform ever since the 20s, was really hoping that he might be getting in on the ground floor uh, and helping a reform, which, of course, didn't happen. Um, so, as I say, the, the, the hope for renewal, which was already announced in Being in Time, um, was was something that, that was very important to Heidegger and to him, as to many intellectuals at the time, National Socialism might, he hoped, harken back to the, the great romantic nationalist visions of the 19th century. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so again and again in the Black Notebooks, uh, Heidegger appeals to the, and I quote, distant calling of the German people to an unprecedented, quote, depth of experience and breadth of horizon, unquote, that would be spearheaded by an intellectual elite, and I quote again, an intellectual elite strong enough to give new shape to the tradition of the Germans, unquote. In 1932, Heidegger still looked to Hitler to rally such an elite. But Hitler, of course, struck out on a different course, throwing out the old spiritual understanding of the German nation as a bourgeois obfuscation. So we have, sorry, we have, and maybe we'll come back to that, we have in the 19th century a nationalism that's very much um, carried by the Bildungsbürgertum, by the educated middle classes, which sees Germany first and foremost as an entity of spirit, um, something 
uh, that, that can bring reform, and particularly educational reform, to the world. Um, Hitler of course replaces this and the National Socialists eventually replace this with a definition of the folk uh, as biologically based as, um, as based in its blood um, Bluton, Boden and so forth so, um, so throwing out the old spiritual understanding of the German nation as a bourgeois obfuscation Hitler defines the folk instead as quote a substance of flesh and blood unquote that requires racial purification and Lebensraum if this people was to have a religious outlook at all um, in the mind of, of the reigning Nazis, uh, it would be in the form of a religion of blood, as it was delivered in Alfred Rosenberg's programmatic book, The Myth of the 20th Century. In Rosenberg's view, the fatal flaw of Christianity was its disregard for what he called the law of the blood. And I quote from Rosenberg, the stream of blood-red real life which rushes through the veins of all true peoples and every culture and alone enables the creation and maintenance of values, unquote. Heidegger, too, by now dismissed Christianity as an ossified system that evaded rather than encouraged spiritual effort, but his hope was for a people trained in radical questioning and intellectual striving, not steeped in blood and soil nationalism. Heidegger was neither unaware nor embarrassed of this conflict with the party line, though he underestimated the Nazis' commitment to that line uh, at first. His 1933 and 34 notebooks are full of scorn for the, quote, vulgar Nazism, unquote, peddled by the media and politicians, with its mix of, quote, ethical materialism, unquote, and dull biologism. The definition of the folk as a biological organism, he thought, reduced it to an absurdity. And I love this particular quote from the Black Notebooks. A giant squid rolling around in space, only to be washed up when it has rolled around enough on the edges of nothingness. Unquote. What the people needed instead, he thought, was a spiritual intellectual Nazism, as he calls it, addressing them as a community with a spiritual intellectual calling. In his 1933 rectoral address, cheekily entitled The Self-Assertion of the German University, unquote, Hitler did just that, folding the military service and labor service that Hitler had introduced neatly, if somewhat disturbingly, into the three-tiered structure of Plato's Republic, administered by philosopher kings, workers, and soldiers. So he says that the three commitments um, to the, through the people, to the destiny of the state, in its spiritual intellectual vision, mission, are equally aboriginal to the German character. The three services springing from them, labor service, military service, and intellectual service, are equally important and of equal rank. So that's interesting. So, of course, we, we mainly hear in this the Nazi rhetoric of labor service and military service, but he very deliberately adds to those the intellectual service that he sees as uh, his own calling, and he here echoes very deliberately Plato's Republic rather than mere, mere Nazi um, ideology. As should be clear by now, Heidegger did not expect his ambition to be realizable through a political program. More than that, uh, and this, is, this is, was already clear from some letters but becomes much clearer in the Black Notebooks, he regarded the ongoing political revolution as nothing more than a preparation for a second spiritual or intellectual one. To his friend Elizabeth Blochmann, again, he wrote shortly after assuming the rectorship that the political upheavals of the moment were always at risk of getting stuck in the superficial, as he said, but had, had the potential 
to become, quote, the way of a first awakening, provided that we are preparing ourselves for a second and deeper one. In the second revolution, Nazism itself would play a strictly subordinate, even an antagonistic role. And this is interesting. Heidegger was very aware that every concerted struggle <clears throat> required an enemy. He says, as I mentioned, in 1933, it never occurred to him to cast the Jews as this enemy. Um, instead, and indeed, as, as, as we've heard, he only mentions Jewry in two or three parenthetical comments uh, in, in, in the first set of books. We can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, <coughs> instead, Heidegger brazenly announced that the present itself would have to become the enemy against which the future would assert itself. If Nazism did not, and I quote again from the Black Notebooks, sacrifice itself as a transitional phenomenon, unquote, but was absolutized and itself treated as eternal truth, then it was merely, quote, aberration and folly, unquote. The second spiritual awakening uh, required philosophy and all philosophical education to remember what is past in order to prepare it for overcoming. So the, the, the task of this transitional period was to, uh, to gather up what is past only to prepare it for being, for being overcome. And here in, in 1933, 32, 33, he still hopes that Nazism itself uh, can be such a driving force which is nevertheless aware of its own transience and striving towards its own dissolution or its own overcoming by what is new. Um, it requires that we as a historical spiritual people still and once again will ourselves, he says to Elizabeth Blochmann. Um, this voluntarism is something we can talk about later as well. So, um, so of course, um, very soon indeed, the um, he he becomes he, he becomes disillusioned with this idea of Nazism as something transitional that can rally the people and prepare them for something more than Nazism itself. Um, and so we have a change in tone, I think, uh, indeed a slight change of attitude. Discernible in the Black Notebooks after 1934-35. Now, this change of tone has, two, or change of attitude, has two main components. I think one, Nazism is folded into his account of Christianity as just another mechanism or totalizing system, um, which which blinds us rather than making us see anew what we ought to see. Um, So here are some quotes, but they're all in German. <laughs> so let's see. Um, yes, so the Falkish principle um, shows, it, shows itself in its uh, gigantic modern significance um, when, we, when we behold in it uh, a modification and an inheritance of the uh, rule of sociology. Um, why, after all, was sociology mainly practiced, or particularly practiced by Jews and Catholics, he asks. Um, and he talks a lot about uh, about the Nazis' um, misinterpretation of the folk. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and simply, uh, and simply, it's uh, it's uh, it's pushing pushing of 
um, pushing of human existence into the kinds of caste and ideological categories that we also see in Christianity. Um, the second aspect, perhaps, of the change in attitude that we see uh, is a realization that people are fighting against Christianity with too much facility, um, without really realizing what they're fighting against. That partly means Christianity is just so embedded in Western culture that, um, that we should take it seriously. It also means that he thinks that people are seemingly struggling against Christianity without ever themselves having felt its power. Um, so we have, for example, a quote from, again, Notebook 6, they struggle against Christendom without ever having been Christians themselves and having to engage with it. And he talks about his mother as, 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 a, as a pious woman who, without bitterness, bore the, bore the path of her seemingly God-rejecting son with surmising anticipation. Um, so there are, there are signs in the Black Notebooks, and this is something I think that we see more strongly elsewhere in his unpublished writings, particularly his letters, um, of a renewed struggle with his own Christian origins. Um, whereas he rejected Christianity very easily in the late 1920s and the early 1930s uh, as just obviously wrong, we now see, after the failure of the rectorship, uh, a renewed struggle with the Christianity of his youth. Um, and, the, and interestingly, the eventual outcome of this struggle becomes determinative of the path of Heidegger's later thought as a whole, I think. After the end of the summer semester of 1935, in which he had delivered the lectures on metaphysics that I quoted before, Heidegger wrote to Karl Jaspers, congratulating the friend on his steady productivity and adding with shame about his own work, and I quote, as for myself, I'm fumbling about laboriously. Only in the last few months have I found my way back to the work broken off in the winter of 1932-33 during my sabbatical term. But it's paltry babble, and anyway, really overcoming the two thorns in my flesh, the struggle with the faith of my youth and the failure of the rectorship is just about enough to be getting on with. In Heidegger's own reflections on his path thus far, and on the possibility of his future work, this, this effort to overcome the Christianity of his youth, as he often says, was now a consistent theme and served him as a lens on his past as well as a goal for the present. Thus, he remembered his Marburg period in a private manuscript that he composed in 1937-38 as having, quote, brought a more intimate experience of a Protestant Christianity, but always already as that which must be fundamentally overcome, though not destroyed, unquote. What exactly he meant by overcoming was a question that Heidegger himself was asking himself uh, or trying to work out at the time. The same 1937-38 manuscript, uh, which is entitled My Path So Far, um, tries to capture the shape of his conflict with Christianity, which he realizes has affected, and I quote him, has affected the whole path of my questioning like subterranean seismic shocks. Um, and I quote from him, uh, from this manuscript, and who should fail to recognize that my entire path so far has been accompanied by a silent engagement with Christianity, an engagement that has never taken the form of an explicitly raised problem, but was rather at once the preservation of my own most provenance, the childhood house, home and youth, and a painful emancipation from it, unquote. 
What made the struggle so difficult was that it could not be rationally analyzed or discussed because it did not revolve primarily around issues of doctrine. Rather, in the enigmatic image that was to become determinative of Heidegger's later thought, it centered, quote, on the one, only on one single question, whether the God is fleeing from us or not, and whether we ourselves are still experiencing this genuinely, i.e. creatively, unquote. In his 1935 letter to Jaspers, Heidegger is eager to put the Christian faith of his youth behind him. Yet already, the Pauline image of a thorn in the flesh, alluding to 2 Corinthians 12, hints at a different conclusion. By 1937 and 8, Heidegger adopts a different narrative of his relationship to Christianity, one of equilibrium in struggle. So he's now no longer looking at um, struggle or confrontation as an undersetzung, as a passing phase, but remain, but, it, but thought that it remained and must remain the enduring quality of his relationship to Christianity. The reason for this lay in Christianity's originary role, both biographically and historically, that is, both for his own path and for the history of the West, which could not simply be escaped. This originary role, however, was counterbalanced by Christianity's wrong-headedness in positing premature answers rather than bearing lack and uncertainty, a development that must be resisted or overcome. What Heidegger came to see was a need not merely to analyse, but to experience this dialectic. Dialectic is a bad word for Heidegger, I don't want to use it, but um, this tension. Only one, he writes, who is deeply rooted is able actually to experience the uprootedness that the conflict brings. And precisely this tension of rootedness and overcoming or uprootedness is the virtue that's required of the thinker who neither clings to the past nor overhastily anticipates the future, but witnesses to the absence of the last god as he genuinely waits for that god's arrival or return. So it's, it's not enough simply to ditch Christianity. It's not enough to, um, to stay within it. You have to experience your own, the way that it has defined and determined yourself, while also realizing its utter inadequacy in order to stand in this tension um, that is required of thinkers in this time. Uh, and that's, of course, why, why he's so... Um, so critical of people who just prematurely uh, just reject it out of hand, Christianity that is. Uh, and this, I think, is also part of Heidegger's critique of the Jews. Uh, I had a conversation with Michael Inwood, who is a, a very eminent Heidegger scholar in Oxford, uh, who would like to suggest that, and I quote Michael, Heidegger was himself a sort of wandering Jew and projected his own faults onto the Jews. This is a nice thought, but I think it can't quite be right. Um, because there was certainly an element of uprootedness in Heidegger, particularly um, in relation to his Catholic upbringing. But he engaged that uprootedness very consciously, as, as I said. And so one of his criticisms of the Jews is precisely that if they are uprooted, they don't notice it, so to say. They're not, they're not standing in any kind of tension. Um, as is true, of course, of the Nazis as well. So we've already noted Heidegger's radical critique of all Christianity as necessarily a metaphysics that forecloses genuine questioning. Um, but Heidegger also has a, a positive, quote-unquote, religious vision in the Black Notebooks against which he defines Christianity. And that's perhaps one of the most interesting aspects uh, of the Black Notebooks in their talk about religion gen generally conceived. Um, it's also one that I haven't come to terms with very much yet and so I won't say very much about it but I just want to suggest a few things to throw into the discussion 
that's um, hopefully being had. So um, he, he defines Christianity as as sort of the antagonist um, he proposes in its place as I've already said this um, this attitude of, uh, of radical questioning, of radical uncertainty of realising that we are in a time of the absence of the gods as he calls it and so he talks again and again um, and it's very interesting to see the origins of this kind of terminology right here in the black notebooks he talks again and again of the last god or of the gods who may be coming or may not be coming but it is for those gods that we wait and we must create a space in which waiting is possible. Um, we haven't even reached a place yet where we're aware of the absence of the gods. Our task at the moment is, uh, is to create a space in which we can realize their absence and wait to see whether they return or whether they stay absent, in which case tough, tough for us, but at least we'll have, we'll have done our part. Um, and, and this is very interesting for many reasons. Part, part of the reason th this is fascinating to me is the sense that there is a change here from the idea in being in time that existence is a question that's constitutively incapable of being answered. As I said before, in being in time, there's a sense that there's an ideal of wholeness which, simply by the structure of human existence, can never be reached. Um, if wholeness were to be reached, we would no longer be there to see it. Um, and partly this ideal in being in time of existence as a question that cannot be answered is reached by a, a secularizing is such an awkward term, but by a, a de-eschatologizing of Christian eschatology. We're rejecting the idea that there is something actual for which we're waiting, which will come after death, namely the eschaton or, or the, the eschatological state. So he's rejecting in the 1920s in, or, in creating his own... Um, unique vision, he's rejecting the idea of something that will come from without to which or for which uh, we're living but of course here in the 1930s we see very much in some sense a return to this idea that we can't live authentically or be um, uh, fulfill our human potential simply by living authentically in uncertainty without any expectation of, of something coming from without. There's a clear sense that there has to be only a God can now save us, as he says in the Spiegel interview. There is something outside of ourselves for which we're hoping while having no control over it at all and not knowing whether it'll come or not. Um, so that's, I think, something something that we have to look at much more closely, obviously. And particularly, I think, um, one line of investigation for, for coming to terms with this is its hearkening back to what I mentioned before, the romantic nationalism of the 19th, 19th century. Um, as I said, the 19th century has, um, has an idea of the folk as something as called to a spiritual destiny. This is something that Heidegger very much harkens back to. Again and again, he criticizes the idea of the folk as something racial, as something defined by blood. Um, we must come back to a spiritual understanding. And of course, his, uh, his model here is very much Hölderlin, um, whom he calls again and again the, the poet of transition, uh, the true metaf metaphysical thinker. And if we look at Hölderlin, of course, we, uh, we see a lot of Heidegger's particular rhetoric already anticipated in Hölderlin. Um, for example, in his, in his famous poem, Bread and Wine, 
from which I'll just read uh, a very short passage and then we'll come to the end. Um, but friend, we come too late. The gods do live, but above our heads, up in another world. In the meantime, I often think it better to sleep than to be thus without companions, to wait thus. And what to do and to say in the meantime, I don't know. And wherefore, poets in destitute times? But they are, you say, like the holy priests of the wine god who travelled from land to land in holy night. Um, so this absence of the gods, as I, I said in the abstract, that I thought that perhaps the, uh, the Black Notebooks returned to uh, uh, a secu the secularized eschatology of the 19th century more than being in time would suggest, and that therefore um, we, have to, we have to perhaps reevaluate to what extent Heidegger is offering a radically new vision that, um, that Christian theologians can to some, to some degree appropriate. Uh, so these are just some of the lines of inquiry that I think we have to follow in, in answering those questions. And um, I look forward to doing so with you, hopefully later today a little bit, uh, and into the next few years. Thank you. Thank you.